Seventy-five years ago this week, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. Hiroshima on August 6 and Nagasaki on August 9, 1945. Obliterating both cities and killing an estimated 200,000 people, with the radiation released poisoning the survivors to this very day. There are currently more than 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world. Most of these weapons of mass destruction belong to the United States or Russia, with more than 3,000 split somewhat evenly between the two countries, on high alert and aimed at each other's major cities, hours ready to be launched at any moment by the president's irrevocable command. And while our government claims that they will not use the weapons on a first-strike basis, like that gets them off some moral hook, it takes a veteran peace activist to state the obvious. We're using them already, you know, just like a bank robber uses a gun when you walk in and point it at somebody. You don't have to shoot it to be not using it. We're terrorizing the world without them even going off. So when you consider how thin the line is between restraint and planetary annihilation, it's time to face up to the exact nature of that terrible nuclear seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the U.S. dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we talk with attorney Alice Slater, a veteran anti-nuclear and anti-war activist, on the current state of nuclear weapons in the world and what is being done to get rid of them before they get rid of us. And to understand the horrors of what an atomic bomb does, we have a speech by Setsko Thurlow, a survivor of the Hiroshima bomb, and a driving force in the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, or ICANN, which won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. Today is Tuesday, August 4, 2020, and here is this week's commemoration on the start 75 years ago of our nuclear hell and what can be done to end it. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, known as ICANN, received the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize for its work in realizing the successful UN negotiations for a treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons. The award was accepted on behalf of ICANN by its executive director, Beatrice Finn, and campaigner Setsko Thurlow, who as a 13-year-old child in Hiroshima was in school when the atomic bomb fell on August 6, 1945. Here is the speech given by Setsko Thurlow on behalf of ICANN at the Nobel Peace Prize Award Ceremony in Oslo, Norway, on December 10, 2017. I speak as a member of the family of Hibaksha, 
Those of us who survived the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. For more than seven decades, we have been working hard for the total abolition of nuclear weapons. We have stood in solidarity with those harmed by the production and testing of these horrific weapons around the world. People from places with long forgotten names like Muroa, Eka, Semipalatinsk, Maralanga, Bikini. People whose lands and seas were poisoned with radiation, whose bodies were experimented upon, whose cultures were forever disrupted. We are not content to be victims. We refuse to wait for a fiery end or to slow poisoning of our world. We refuse to sit idly in terror as the so-called great powers took us past nuclear dusk and brought us recklessly close to nuclear midnight. We rose up. We shared our stories of survival. We said, nuclear weapons and humanities cannot coexist. Today, I want you to feel in this hall the presence of all those who perished in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I want you to feel above and around a great cloud of a quarter million souls. Each person had a name. Each person was loved by someone. Let us ensure that their deaths were not in vain. I was just 13 years old girl when the United States dropped the first atomic bomb on my city of Hiroshima. I remember that morning vividly. At 8.15, I saw a blinding 
bluish-white flush. I remember having the sensation of floating in the air. When I regained the consciousness in the total darkness and silence, I found myself pinned under the collapsed building. I knew I was faced with death. I began hearing faint voices of my classmates around me. Mother, help me. God, help me. Then all of a sudden, somebody shook my left shoulder from behind. The man saying, don't give up, keep pushing, keep kicking. You see the sun ray coming through that opening. Crawl toward it as quickly as possible. As I crawled out, the rubble was on fire. Most of my classmates in the same building were burnt to death alive. I saw all around me utter unrecognizable, unimaginable devastation. Procession of ghostly figures shuffled by. Grotesquely wounded people, they were bleeding, burned, blackened, and swollen. Parts of their bodies were missing, flesh and skin hung from their bones. Some with their own eyeballs hanging in their hands. Some with their bellies burst open, their intestines hanging out. The foul stench of burnt human flesh filled the air. Thus, with one bomb, my beloved city was obliterated. Most of its residents were civilians who were incinerated, vaporized, carbonized, among them members of my own family and 351 schoolmates of mine. In the weeks, months, and the years that followed, many thousand more, more would die, often in random and mysterious ways from the delayed effects of radiation. Still to this day, radiation is killing survivors. Whenever I remember Hiroshima, the first image that comes to my mind 
is my four-year-old nephew, Asian. His little body transformed into an unrecognizable melted chunk of flesh. He kept begging for water in a faint voice until his death released him from agony. To me, he came to represent all the innocent children of the world, threatened as they are at this very moment by nuclear weapons. Every second of every day, nuclear weapons endanger everyone we love and everything we hold dear. We must not tolerate this insanity any longer. and the sheer struggle to survive and to rebuild our lives from the ashes, we Hibaksha became convinced that we must warn the world about these apocalyptic weapons. Time and again, we shared our testimonies. But still, some refuse to see Hiroshima and Nagasaki atrocities as war crimes. They accepted propaganda that these were good bombs that had ended the war, just war. It was this myth that led the disastrous nuclear arms race, a race that continues to this day. Nine nations still threaten to incinerate entire cities, to destroy life on Earth, to make our beautiful world uninhabitable for our future generations. The development of nuclear weapons signifies not a country's elevation to greatness, but to its descent to the darkest depths of depravity. These weapons are not a necessary evil. 
They are the ultimate evil. On the 7th of July this year, I was overwhelmed with joy when a great majority of the world's nation voted to adopt the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Having witnessed humanity at its worst, I witnessed that day humanity at its best. We Hibaksha had been waiting for the ban for 72 years. Let this be the beginning of the end of nuclear weapons. All responsible leaders will listen to this, will sign this treaty and history will judge harshly those who reject it. No longer, no longer shall their abstract theories mask the genocidal reality of their practices. No longer shall deterrence be viewed as anything but a deterrent to disarmament. No longer shall we live under the mushroom cloud of fear. To the officials of nuclear weapon nations and to their accomplices under the so-called nuclear umbrella, I say this, Listen to our testimony. Heed our warning. And know that your actions are consequential. You are each an integral part of the system of violence that threatens humankind. Let us all be alert to the banality of evil. To every president and prime minister of every nation of the world, I beseech you, join this treaty, forever eradicate the threat of nuclear annihilation. When I was a 13-year-old girl trapped in the smoldering rubble. I kept pushing, I kept moving toward the light. And I survived.
Our light now is a banned treaty. To all in this hall and all listening around the world, I repeat those words that I heard in the ruins of Hiroshima. Don't give up, keep pushing, keep moving, see the light, crawl towards it. Tonight, we march through the streets of Oslo with torches aflame. Let us follow each other out of the dark night of nuclear terror. Setsko Thurlow of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, which can be found at the website icanw.org. Setsko Thurlow, a survivor of the atomic bomb blast in Hiroshima and a campaigner for the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. We will have a link to the full Nobel Peace Prize ceremony on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 475. So what is the current nuclear weapons situation in the world? We'll learn about that from a veteran anti-nuclear and peace campaigner in just a moment. But first, it's exactly as I predicted. With the A-bomb anniversaries, the mainstream media has inundated us with pro-nuclear stories, none of them focusing on the human cost, the planetary cost, the forever cost of nuclear technology. From the earliest lies to cover up radiation impact from the Trinity test in New Mexico, the first atomic bomb detonation, through the current dismantling of nuclear treaties and ramping up of nuclear weapons production here in the U.S., it's hard for anyone who did not live through the Cold War to understand exactly what's at stake, the forever dangers of radioactivity, the horror of nuclear holocaust. And that well-enforced ignorance puts all of us at risk. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week, in depth, and especially now, with the coronavirus wrecking havoc on safety at reactors, with weapon systems, and with the radioactive waste. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only place you can count on to report the ongoing evolving nuclear truth that the nuclear industry would rather you not hear about, let alone understand. But the COVID pandemic has hit us as hard as anyone, which makes your help to keep the show going more important than ever so that we can meet our monthly nut. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to help with a donation of any size. And that same red button is now where you can send a monthly $5.00. The same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So please, do what you can now, and know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Alice Slater serves on the board of directors of World Beyond War, is the U.S. NGO representative to the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, on the board of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, the Global Council of Abolition 2000, and the advisory board of NukeBan U.S., supporting the mission of ICANN to abolish nuclear weapons and pass into international law the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I spoke with Alice Slater on Friday, July 31st, 2020. Alice Slater. 
always good to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. You have been very involved with the peace and anti-nuclear movements for decades now. Give us a sense of what the nuclear aspect of the world looked like when you first became involved. I want to really tell you a story because we have to think about this. In 1945, I was seven years old, and we went to the movies on Saturday if it rained during the summer. And they had the movie tone news, and they showed a picture of the atom bomb exploding over Hiroshima. And I remember saying to my mother, what is that? And she turned to me and said, this is a wonderful new weapon, and now all the boys will come home. And this was what we were told. You know, there's now uh, more understanding that we didn't have to drop the bomb, that Japan was getting to surrender. Eisenhower and Omar Bradley were telling Truman, we don't have to do this. And Churchill was saying, hurry up and drop the bomb so we don't have to divide the Japanese occupation with uh, Russia because they were our allies in Europe. We had ended the war in Europe in May, and August was uh, the end of the Asian war and Stalin was going to get in to help us. So we we wanted to end it before he got there. Otherwise, we would have had to share uh, the Japanese occupation like we were sharing the Eastern Europe occupation with them. So that was the beginning. And then I got active with the Vietnam War as an activist. And then years later, I went to law school in the 80s. And I was working as a lawyer, and I saw something in the law journal, the Lawyers Alliance for Nuclear Arms Control was having a luncheon. And I thought, well, that's interesting. (laughs) So I go and I wind up vice chair in the chapter. I go on the national board with McNamara and Colby. I know more about nuclear weapons now than any sane person should know. And at that time... Russia, under Gorbachev, the Soviet Union, stopped nuclear testing because they had this Kazakh poet, Olza Suleimanov, that led a march in Kazakhstan. The Soviets tested in Kazakhstan at Semipolitans because there was so much cancer and birth defects. They marched on the test site and Gorbachev stopped nuclear testing. We, Kennedy tried to stop it in the 60s, but they wouldn't let him. They only stopped atmospheric testing. But then it went underground, and we did a 1,000 underground tests on western Shoshone Holy Land in Nevada. And that also leaked and sent radiation into the air. So now Gorbachev said he's going to stop nuclear testing. So my lawyers group went to members of Congress and said, Soviet Union stopping. We should stop They said to us, oh, you can't trust the Russians. So the head of the Lawyers Alliance for Nuclear Arms Control, who was president of the New York City Bar Association, Bill DeWin, Paul Weiss, Rifkin, big law firm, and also the DeWins were like the Dutch DeWins that owned the Hudson with the Roosevelt's, you know, old line American family, raised $6 million from his friends. And I went with this delegation. We went over to the Soviet Union and we met with the Soviet lawyers and government people. And he hired a team of seismologists with the $6 million. And we said to the Russians, will you let us put our American seismologists in Kazakhstan around the Soviet test site to monitor, to make sure that you really did stop nuclear testing? 
And they said, yes, and we have that. And we go back to Congress and we said, well, now you don't have to trust the Russians. We have seismologists there, and if they test, we'll know about it. And that's how we stopped nuclear testing in America. So that was a very early positive experience. But what I found out, you know, Clinton came in, we finally negotiated the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which Russia ratified. We never did. We, you know, he signed it, Clinton. But after he signed it, he gave the laboratory $6.5 billion the first year to do subcritical tests and laboratory tests. And what are subcritical tests? They were blowing up plutonium at the Nevada test site, but it didn't have a chain reaction. So Clinton said, it's not a test. Like, I didn't inhale, I didn't have sex, and I'm not testing. And that was why India India wouldn't sign the test ban treaty. They said, if you don't preclude the subcriticals and the laboratory tests, we're not going to be left behind in the technology race because they quietly had their bomb in the basement, but they couldn't do all this advanced nuclear testing. And so they didn't sign. And in the end, they wound up breaking out and testing, followed by Pakistan. I mean, it's always, we've always been the aggressor. I mean, it's quite unusual. And I looked into this U.S.-Russian relationship because I saw Clinton moving ahead with high-level subcriticals. And then, of course, the Russians followed us. They did it in Novaya Zemlya. And we think the Chinese were doing it in lot. You know, we were like leading the charge. And I started to look at, you know, where is this coming from? Why can't we stop it? We had this non-proliferation treaty that we signed in 1975 countries, U.S., Russia, England, China, and France had nuclear bombs at that time. And they promised that they would make good faith efforts to give up their nuclear weapons if the rest of the world promised not to get it. And everybody signed that treaty except for three countries, India, Pakistan, and Israel, and they got them. And the treaty had this Faustian bargain that allowed anybody that promised not to get nuclear weapons, we'll give you the keys to the bomb tracker. We'll give you a, quote, inalienable right to peaceful nuclear power. I ask you, inalienable right, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, inalienable rights, and peaceful nuclear power? Peaceful nuclear power is a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron because, as I have learned from you, every nuclear reactor has a bomb in the basement. Well, it gives them the technology they need. That's the hardest part to make a bomb is to get to be able to enrich the uranium, which is the waste product of a nuclear reactor, and put it through the reactor a few more times and it gets to bomb quality. And that's what North Korea did. They got their peaceful reactor. They walked out. They made a bomb. We were afraid Iran was doing that, although they assured us they were not. And we didn't stop other countries from enriching, like Japan and Brazil and South Africa. Only Iran. You know, it's so unfair how we enforce the law. There have been many missed opportunities through the years to de-escalate the nuclear arms race between the U.S. and Russia. Yes. Give us a sense of what some of these have been. Right. Well, going back to the end of World War II, where Stalin was our ally, 
by the way, they lost 27 million Russians to the Nazi onslaught. I think that's like such an amazing figure. I'm Jewish. We talk about the Holocaust and the 6 million. We, we put that figure out over and over again. I had the World Trade Center in New York where 3,000 people died and we turned the whole world upside down. They lost 27 million people. Anyway, Stalin said to Truman, after World War II, we were allies, turn the bomb over to the United Nations because we and the Soviets drafted the whole charter for the UN and the number one principle of the UN was to end the scourge of war. And Truman said no, so Stalin got his bomb. And then after the war came down and Gorbachev let go of all of Eastern Europe without a shot, I mean, it was like a miracle. He and Reagan met in Reykjavik, and Gorbachev said to Reagan, let's get rid of our nuclear weapons, you know, with the end of communism, the end of the communist occupation. Reagan said, great idea. Nuclear war can never be won. We must never use them. And Gorbachev said, but don't do Star Wars. We had a mission statement in our space program to dominate and control the military use of space. And Reagan said to Gorbachev, I'm not giving up Star Wars. So Gorbachev pulled it off the table. And the other thing, they were so nervous, Gorbachev, when the war came down and Germany was reuniting after what they had suffered, he just asked Reagan not to let a united Germany into NATO. And Reagan said to Gorbachev, don't worry. Let them be united. Let them come into NATO. And I give you our word, we will not expand NATO one inch to the east. In other words, would not encroach upon Russia. Right. And now we're right up to their border and we're doing war games on their borders. I mean, this is like very aggressive. And then Clinton was starting to put emplacements with missiles in Romania. And we had this anti-ballistic missile treaty with the Soviet Union since 1972 that only allowed us to build one missile defense in each country. And he was already negotiating with these Eastern Europe countries that we took into the, the alliance. And Putin proposed to Clinton, let's cut our arsenals. At that time, there were about 16,000 nuclear weapons on the planet. Now there are about 14,000. But it started at the height of the Cold War at 70,000. So there have been these treaties over the years to reduce them. So he, Putin said to Clinton, let's go down to 1,000 each and get everybody at the table and negotiate for abolition. But don't put missiles in Romania. And Clinton said, I can't promise that. Then Bush gets elected and walks out of this anti-ballistic missile treaty that we signed with them in 1972. And they put them in Romania, and now Trump is putting them in Poland. And I want you to read something that Putin said, if I may. I think it would be interesting because this show is about having a different perspective on nuclear issues. Right. And this is a very different perspective. Right. But, I mean, this is facts. I'm not making this up. Putin spoke in March 2018. This was... Uh, after we didn't ratify the treaty and, you know, then Obama made this little deal with Medvedev, Putin's, uh, there was a president that Putin put in for a few years. They let go of 1,500 nuclear weapons. And in order to make that deal, Obama 
promised the Congress over a trillion dollars for the next 20 years for two new bomb factories in Oak Ridge and Lawrence Livermore and new submarines, missiles, airplanes, delivery systems. I mean, this was like not just Trump, Obama was doing it. And there was another thing that happened with Obama that when we attacked Iran's enrichment program with Israel, boasted about it. We did like a computer attack and we messed up their uranium enrichment. Putin called Obama, this was the New York Times story, and said, why don't we negotiate a cyber ban treaty? And Obama said no. America said no. And Russia and China had been proposing every year in the UN, and particularly they tabled a model treaty in 2008 and 2014 during Bush and Clinton administration. Oh, that was Obama, Clinton and Obama to keep weapons out of space, to ban space weapons. And the U.S. blocked it. You need a consensus to discuss it in Geneva. We blocked it. So here's Putin's take, okay? March 2018, he said, I will talk about the newest system of Russian strategic weapons that we are creating in response to the unilateral withdrawal of the United States from the ABM Treaty. And the practical deployment of their missile defense systems, both in the U.S. and beyond their borders. And then he gave the background that when they, back in 2000, we announced we were going to withdraw. That was Bush. They were categorically against it. They felt this really kept us safe from nuclear weapons because we all agreed only to have one such installation, one in Moscow. We had one in North Dakota, and and we would be very vulnerable. And how they did their best to dissuade the Americans. All in vain. The U.S. pulled out of the treaty in 2002. Even after that, we tried to develop constructive dialogue. Everything they proposed was rejected. And then we said that we would have to improve our modern strike system to protect our security. And that's what the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about in his just uses an excuse. They say, look, Russia's doing it. We have to do it. But in truth, it was our intransigence and our unwillingness to step back from that nuclear cutting edge that sparked Russia to increase their missile defense systems. Right. It made them get the bomb. Stalin was willing to not get the bomb if we would have turned it over to the U.N. It's been like that all the way. Yes. With the missiles, you know, that was the latest affront. And now, of course, Bush is threatening to use nuclear weapons, you know, to test them again, which we've never full-scale full testing, not the subcritical Trump. So, I mean, this is like uh, we're, we're at an insane moment in history. You know, we should be calling for And there's so many good initiatives that came through, like this new ban treaty, you know, the Non-Proliferation Treaty was negotiated in uh, 1970, and by 95, they still hadn't gotten rid of They hadn't kept their promises to make good-faith arguments. And then there was this World Court decision where the Lawyers Committee for Nuclear Policy, I was part of it, we brought a case to the World Court to say nuclear weapons are banned, they're illegal, they're prohibited. Because the non-proliferation treaty just said, you know, we're going to make good faith efforts to get rid of them. It doesn't ban them. It allows the five countries to have them. 
So the court gave us a very bad decision. They said they're generally illegal. That's like being generally pregnant. <laughs> and then they and then they said we're not going to decide whether they're illegal in the case where the very survival of a state is at stake. So they allowed deterrence. And when that came out, the thinking changed. The International Red Cross started talking about the catastrophic humanitarian effects of nuclear war. We had forgotten about it. You know, when I was a kid, we used to do bomb shelters, but we forgot about it, you know, and they brought it back, the horrible consequences, and we formed the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. That's what I want to get into next. There has been a long history of really negative, depressing decisions and actions involving nuclear weapons. At the same time, there has been, in more recent years, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, the group called ICANN. What is the group? What is its goal? And how have you worked with them? Well, this is what happened because the nonproliferation treaty was extended. It was negotiated in 1970, and they had to come back in 95, 25 years later, to see how they were doing. And we all showed up, civil society, and we saw they weren't doing at all. You know, there was no commitment to get rid of them. And that time, we formed Abolition 2000, calling for a treaty to eliminate nuclear weapons by the year 2000. And we did a model treaty. And we also called for a sustainable energy agency to phase out nuclear power because they're inextricably linked. And we did establish IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, which was a good thing. But by the time when they had that review conference, the U.S. got it extended indefinitely, unconditionally. They weren't going to promise anything except to have a review every five years. And the only thing they really promised, because Egypt was going to walk out, was that we were going to hold a weapons of mass destruction conference for the Middle East, just hold a conference, which we never delivered on. So things are getting worse and worse. And by 2015, South Africa said this is like nuclear apartheid. The nuclear haves are threatening all the nuclear have-nots, and they have no intention of getting rid of their nuclear weapons. And that's when this idea, let's get a treaty that bans the bomb, like we have chemical weapons treaty and biological weapons treaty that banned the bomb, but there's no treaty that says nuclear weapons are prohibited, illegal, you can't have them, you can't use them. And that campaign got going. We got a lot of help from the Pope. Austria was a wonderful supporter. The first meeting was in Norway. These friendly governments that felt it was time to get rid of nuclear, you know, the non-nuclear friendly governments. And it took off. And within two years, we had the negotiations going at the United Nations and they adopted the treaty, 122 nations. Now, five nuclear weapon states boycotted all the meetings and all our NATO alliance that's under the U.S. nuclear umbrella plus the Pacific nations of Australia, South Korea, and Japan, which that's surprising. I mean, you'd think Japan would support the ban treaty, but they're part of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Let's just roll this back slightly, because what you're talking about, what this in 2015 became, was the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, as it's familiarly known. 
it started in 2010, you know, but it really took off 2015. The Pope got behind it. I mean, that was amazing because the Pope always supported deterrence, but the Vatican came out and supported this. You know, there was a lot of powerful players. And one of the things that ICANN has been so successful in doing is reframing the nuclear discussion from one of military defense to one of international humanitarian rights. Right. How was that accomplished? At the 2000 NPT where nothing got done and South Africa was upset, the International Red Cross made this incredible speech about the humanitarian consequences of nuclear war catastrophic consequences, and it caught on. People heard it again, and that was the impetus for ICANN to organize and get funding. The government of Norway paid them. A few good, powerful players in the beginning that supported the grassroots, and it went all over the world. It went like wildfire. And mostly, like Africa, the Caribbean, you know, not the nuclear weapons states, not the, the NATO state. You know, they're NATO is all in the U.S. nuclear alliance. As a matter of fact, this is disgusting. We keep U.S. nuclear weapons in five NATO states, Germany, Italy, Holland, Belgium, and Turkey. And that's going to help the ban treaty. Like there now that the ban treaty says nuclear weapons are illegal, and they'll be actually illegal by the law when we get 50 countries to ratify, and we're now at 40. We have over 80 or 90 that signed, but ratification is like in the U.S. to ratify, two-thirds of the Senate has to approve. So there's ratifications going on all over the world, and then it will be international law, it will be official law. But even now, it's like a legal taboo now. And so we're having some very effective organizing in countries like Germany, where the Germans are saying, we can't have U.S. nuclear weapons here, you know, they're, they're illegal the countries that have the nuclear weapons. In other words, the countries where we have nuclear weapons based and on alert and pointed at Russia. Well, that's another thing. We have 2,500 missiles and they have 2,500 missiles pointed at each other's major cities ready to go off within 15 minutes. That's the alert. So there's a big campaign to de-alert them which I think is good. There's another campaign, No First Use, which I think is ridiculous because we're using them already, you know, just like a bank robber uses a gun when you walk in and point it at somebody. You don't have to shoot it to be not using it. We're terrorizing the world without them even going off. It's not going to be even a nut job like Trump saying, I'm going to push the button and start a nuclear. It's going to be an accident. We had like this movie, The Man Who Saved the World, with Colonel Petrov, who was in the Russian silos with his missiles all pointed at all New York and Washington and Boston. And he saw something on his computer screen that looked like the U.S. was coming in to attack them. And his instructions were to let them all fire and knock out all our cities. And he waited. And it turned out it was a computer glitch. They made a movie about him. He even got in trouble that he didn't follow orders, you know. We 
had about five years ago, we had this minute Air Force base, an airplane carrying six missiles that were each loaded with five bombs each or something like that. It was missing. It went to New Orleans by mistake for 36 hours. They didn't even know where it was. And I saved the congressional record that there were 36 airplane crashes carrying nuclear bombs. We used to have them flying 24-7 from 1956 through the 90s. And then this General Lee Butler came in and grounded all the planes and said, this is ridiculous, we can't have them. But they never went off. Two of them spewed a little plutonium in Palomaris, Spain, and two the Greenland. One is off the coast of Georgia. It has never been found. And, you know, we're just lucky. We're just lucky. It's time to get rid of them. We can't trust our science or our technology well, not to have an accident. Luck is a terrible strategy or plan to have in connection with anything <laughs> nuclear. Now, I want to talk about the fact that the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was voted on and 122 countries voted for it on July 7 of 2017. That was the start of the process. Then later that year, ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, was granted the Nobel Peace Prize for 2017. And I know that you were in the room where it happened on December 10th of 2017 when ICANN received the Nobel Peace Prize. What was that like for you? It was wonderful, and I would like to go back to the time we were notified in November, and my daughter was staying with me. She lives in L.A., and she was sleeping over, and I get a phone call at 5.30 in the morning from Tillman Ruff, who's a physician in Australia who was the chair of the international campaign. A lot of the international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war were very active in this campaign. And he and his wife had been staying with me in New York when they were negotiating at the UN. So I get this call at 5.30 in the morning and he says, Alice, we won the Nobel Peace Prize. And I start screaming. And my <laughs> daughter gets up, Mom, who's calling so early and why are you screaming? <laughs> I said, I won the Nobel Peace Prize. So now she's <laughs> screaming and the two of us are jumping. I said, you have to go to Oslo. I said, no, I'm too old. It's too cold. It's too dark. I'll go with you. So my daughter went with me and the nation paid me to write it up. I wrote up the events and it was, it was fabulous. I mean, there was a red carpet in this beautiful city hall and the king and queen came sailing down the carpet and the prize was accepted by two people in our campaign. Beatrice Finn was the executive director, this lovely woman in her 30s from Sweden that she was like the executive director of the campaign. And she had had a baby while this was all happening over the 10 years. And Setsuko Thurlow, who was 82-year-old survivor of Hiroshima, very articulate woman, she survived the bomb as a schoolgirl, went to Canada, married a Canadian, became a sociologist. She was so articulate and well-spoken, and she spoke at all our UN meetings. So Setsuko and Beatrice accepted the Nobel Peace Prize with the king and queen there. And it was just a dream. It was a dream that we did that. I actually got up in the middle of the night to watch the awards ceremony live <laughs> online with the live stream. I saw you Thank in you. the audience. Oh, and yeah. 
tears coming down my face for joy because it's so rare that we have moments like this to celebrate and see a milestone and see genuine progress being made. And I wanted to share in that live. I want to pose to you, what is it going to take, do you think, to have a genuine movement in this country, in the United States, to do away with nuclear weapons? Well, I have a very definite take on this. We need a truth and reconciliation process for the U.S.-Russian relationship. Just like we're doing now with Black Lives Matter and we're revisiting having Columbus as a hero when he's enslaved all those Indians and, you know, shipped them back to Europe on slave ships. And now we have the Me Too movement and we have to have the U.S.-Russian movement. And I want to tell you, that I went to Queens College in 1954 during the height of the McCarthy era in the Cold War. And we were so terrified of communists. And I was having a discussion with somebody in my uh, cafeteria. And she said, here, you should read this. And she gives me this pamphlet. And it says, Communist Party of America. And my heart is pounding in terror. I put it in my book bag. I go home in the Bronx. I walk up to the eighth floor, take the elevator. I walk directly to the incinerator and throw it down without looking. And then I went with the Lawyers Alliance when Gorbachev came in. And I heard first that 27 million people died, which I didn't know. And then I saw every guy over 60 was walking around with his World War II medals on. And you go to the Leningrad Cemetery and it's 400,000 mass graves. And every street corner had a, a monument to the dead. So my guide said, we had guides, he said to me, why don't you Americans trust us? And I look at him, arrogant American, why don't we trust you? What about Hungary? What about Czechoslovakia? Why should we trust you? And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, we had to protect our border from Germany. And I looked at him and he was telling me that that was their truth. I mean, it wasn't very nice what they did in Eastern Europe, but they were not coming after us. They were just digging in because Hitler marched, Poland gave them a ride to walk right in, and even Napoleon invaded them the century before. So they were, like, controlling Eastern Europe so that the Germans couldn't get near them. And I felt like we had gotten a very misbegotten story. And I've been looking even earlier, Woodrow Wilson was sending troops to stop the Russian Revolution. So I think to stop this, since there are like 14,000 bombs now on the planet and 13,000 in the U.S. and Russia, if we don't get our act together, it'll never happen. And we can't get our act together unless we tell the truth. Because we're like demonizing Russia now. You know, Russia stole the election. And Putin gave a big speech in May on the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. We have been isolating Russia from the celebrations in Europe of having defeated Hitler when they were the major people that fought Hitler. And he was calling for a study group to look at the true lessons of history or else we're going to be making mistakes. And I think we should meet him on that. We should have a historical commission and find out how did this go off track? Who did watch who? From my research, it looks like America's the bad guy here, my, my own country. 
that we are, as President Eisenhower said in his farewell address, he was the big general that won World War II. When he left office as president in the 1950s, he said, we have to be concerned about the military-industrial complex. It's corrupting our government and influencing our policies, and we have to be alert about it. And I think that's what's been going on all these years. So, Alice, if people want to get involved with moving us towards peace, not only getting rid of nuclear weapons, but instituting a way of being that frames things in humanitarian terms and moves things for what is best for the greatest number of people, as opposed to power over and threats and the dangers of nuclear. Where can they get started? Give us a few easy steps just so that people can learn more and get involved. World Beyond War, which is basically saying, let's make a world where war is so 20th century. We haven't won a war since World War II. They're looking at telling the truth about a lot of things, the myths about war and the solutions and what works and what doesn't work. So it's worldbeyondwar.org. ICANN has a campaign, you know, we ha- we need another 10 nations to ratify this treaty and we got to peel off some of the NATO kind. I mean, who knows, maybe if we change our governments, America will change. But right now there's a cities campaign and a parliamentary campaign. So like we got a resolution into the New York City Council calling on our government to support the ban treaty. And then there's a parliamentary pledge, like I asked my member of Congress to sign a pledge asking the United States to sign the ban treaty. I would look at ICANW.org, worldbeyondwar.org, and here in the U.S., usnuclearban.org, don'tbankonthebomb.org. The links will be up on the website under this episode, which is 475. And... As we go into the commemoration for August 6th, Hiroshima, and August 9th, Nagasaki, and the dropping of the atom bombs there, you've given us a wealth of historical perspective on the bomb. And for that, and for everything you've been doing for all of these years, I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. It was so wonderful to speak with you. Attorney and veteran peace campaigner, Alice Slater. We will have links to all of the groups she mentioned up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 475. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. Levy Halevi of Heart History Communications reminding you, the nuclear arsenal represents a self-destruct button for the human race. That's your nuclear wake-up call. Don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. <laughs>